Hey Joe. Hello Adam. How was your Christmas? Doesn't it seem a long time ago now? It does, it seems so long ago now. It's crazy, it comes around so fast and then suddenly it seems like a long time ago, doesn't it? It's it, mad. It is mad. It, time sure is crazy. Like how between Christmas and New Year, I often don't even know what day it is. And then for the first week of January... Do you not even know what year it is? Exactly. I keep writing 2021 on official documents now to scribble it out. Yeah, yeah. Do you know what? Do you know what month it is? Uh, no, no, it's December, isn't it? No, it <laughs> well, you just January said it was January, January, so it's weird, isn't it? You can know what month it is, but not what year or what day. I know, yeah. it's mad. It's a universal human experience. That's what, how it is. And do you want to know something else that's really strange? What's that? Um, every day it gets dark a little bit later at this time of year, doesn't it? It does, and in the morning it gets a little bit lighter. It does. Actually, to be fair, I have to say I do exchange photos between four and five in the evening with um, one of my relatives every day to say, like, oh, look, it is a bit lighter. So even though we're satirising that, I do do it and get genuinely excited when it is a bit lighter because it is, isn't it? Every It's every year. It's every year. There's it no is. let up. Well, I'm just waiting yeah. for it to get a little bit warmer. Yeah, it will be better when it's warmer, um, just a bit lighter and a bit warmer. Um, that is the, what you don't get in the winter, isn't it? That's true. Good God, this must be dull to listen to. It is, but also, I mean, obviously it's the law. This is how every conversation has to begin during miserable month of January. Well, now that we've got that bit of conversational housekeeping out of the way, can I tell you a real story from my Christmas that involves the idea of this podcast? Please tell me a real story. Is it long? I don't think so. Okay, good. So can you fit it in before the theme music starts? I'll try very If you talk, quickly. Qu- okay, talk quickly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So go quick, because the music is okay, coming, it's coming, it's coming. Go. In September, I went to a wedding. No, that. you don't really have to do it fast, because we'll choose when the music comes on. That was a joke. <laughs> okay. Go on. In September, I went to a wedding, and I met mm-hmm. the bride's sister. Well, I knew the bride's sister already, but I met the bride's sister's partner, who's a guy called Steve. Right. And got to know Steve over the three days of this weekend wedding, and uh, somehow it came up in conversation that I co-host this podcast. And he went away with the card for the podcast and the address and everything and I love that I love that you carry the card for this podcast to like everywhere that you go so um yeah and then mm. and then over Christmas my friend who got married said would you like to come to this place called Club of Heart for a little walk around and um, my sister and her partner and my mum and dad they'll all be there so I went to meet them and as we were walking around the lake at Clement mm. Park, it transpired that Steve had in fact been listening to the podcast right and he said that it was quite okay Really? Um, yeah, but he said, uh, they were, he, he said, I'm not too sure I know that much about Jonathan Swift or the 18th century. And mm. he never said to me that it was an 18th century podcast. And I said, well, it's not really anymore. Like, it sort of started with that focus because we were drawing on... Yeah. I said, if you start from about episode... If you start from about episode 20, it's mm. definitely going to be good and topical and well-edited and there's going to be great chemistry. Well, there's always been good chemistry. But I was like, if you start from episode one... Uh, it's going to be quite amateurish. So if I, I'd recommend starting from episode 20 or maybe episode 12 because there's some good interviews in the second set of episodes. Mm. And well, there's good said? interviews in all of them, to be yeah. fair, right from the beginning. It's just that because we were always trying to edit it down to be 20 minutes, Yeah, you know. That is true. Yeah. But he said, fuck off, no, I'm not doing that. Uh, that's your responsibility. If you're not happy to stand by the quality of your early episodes, you should take them off the internet. Or record something to go at the beginning to say this is substandard jump to episode 20 for a decent episode but he said i have to listen to all of them and i said why do you have to listen to all of them he said so that i can appreciate any in jokes or references and i understand the mythology right um which i quite like the idea that there's a smith and war mythology potentially. yeah but what do you think about that do you think we should delete our back catalogue i mean i don't no because i mean the thing is like the conversations we had are worth having mm. and there's some really 
nice funny bits and we talked to some great people and we had some good conversations but we weren't as good at editing the sound quality wasn't always brilliant i mean i'm saying that when we listen back to this one the sound quality might be awful mm. but um like the fact that we had to edit out every um and er and breath means that sometimes we sound really breathless and we just maybe hadn't hit our stride yet but i wouldn't want to go back to them and say like oh this is shit don't listen to no. it I mean, I let listeners decide, but when I listen back to those early episodes, uh, as I do often sometimes do because I've been teaching, um, mm. I'm quite struck, actually, by how quickly the bare bones of the formula that we have. Like the episode when we are talking about, when I'm asking you to describe cartoons to the listener, that's very on-brand. And that's been plagiarised in uh, yeah. Booked and Reported, hasn't it? And my relative, one of my relatives told me um, that he listened to the podcast on Christmas Day. Wow. with his partner and they thought it was very good they listened to the Christmas episode and enjoyed it and another friend of mine told me she said I listened to an episode of your podcast the other day because I had to do an hour of exercise and I thought what can take my mind off the pain <laughs> so uh, so we're like a Christmas treat a pain distraction and also what what did your friend say at the lake he said it was fine yes good and we're also fine yeah good okay let the music play let the music play Are you okay, Joe? You look a bit pensive. Yeah, I was just thinking about that little chat that we just had just now to open the show. Oh, yeah. Um, And it seems like, actually, one of the things we said people always say is how Christmas already seems like a lifetime ago, don't they? They do say that. Yeah, you have to say, like, Happy New Year. Did you have a lovely Christmas? Oh, I'm struggling to remember it now. But yes, yes, it did. I had a lovely Christmas. But yeah, so like any festive spirit or warm happy feeling that you got from being able to spend unlimited amounts of time indoors with your family for the first time in two years that feels like a lifetime ago and that was kind of snuffed out quite quickly for us because we were back to being fully on campus and teaching at 9am on the 4th of January Um, but some some of the things from Christmas here comes the twist doesn't seem like quite such a lifetime ago Ah, like what? Ah, well, remember our Christmas episode, the one that your relative listened to for Christmas, yep. yeah, from mid-December, and we started out by talking about Partygate, yeah. and that hasn't gone away, has it? Um, if it's it's more even, it's even <laughs> even more now, it um, is. and it's been satirised a lot. So I think we should talk about that, and also think we should get this out super quick before yeah. the next thing comes out. Yeah, it's it is. Bit, I feel like if a day happens now when something hasn't happened, yeah. when there isn't like a thing trending on Twitter about yet another party, yeah. I'm like, it's like you've gone to the advent calendar and that door has nothing behind it. I'm like counting through it day by day and excited to see what terrible thing has happened. It is interesting how quaint our Christmas episode already sounds where we're like, did you know they had a party? Yeah. And now it transpires yeah. they had parties the whole time. They had they had them like every day, I think, didn't they? they so, yeah, something else yeah. that's quaint is that we, or that seems quaint now, is that we're both proofreading the edit, that we're looking at the um, 
What do you call the it? Proofs the proofs book. for our book. The proofs for our book. Which includes... We're reading the proofs. Is there a word for we're that? We're reading the proofs. We're proofing, proofreading. Proofing the reads. Yeah. Um, yeah. We are, proofreading the proofs. I was proofreading... The proof of the reading is in the proofing. <laughs> That's true. I was proofing the reading on Saturday yeah. for the episode where we talk about Dominic Cummings and his Barnard Castle eye test. Yeah. And how everyone was outraged that he had insisted on the importance of restrictions then broken the restrictions. Yeah. And well, they, now we know. They all always doing it. Mm. A lot. Yeah. So, but anyway, before we get into that... Yeah. Um... Would you like to tell the lovely listeners what is this podcast that is fine that they are yeah. listening to? How are we? And uh, and what do we need to do? Um, this is the what do we need to do? I don't know. <laughs> well, I, mean, I need to do anything if we don't want to do. This lovely podcast that needs to work hard to clean up its back catalog. Oh right, okay, yeah. okay. Um, this is the podcast that is the podcast of Warren Smith talking about satire, um, and it is a podcast in which. We explore the form, function, future, and history of satire in a desperate bid to distract ourselves from everything. I'm Dr. Adam Smith, senior lecturer in 18th century literature. And I'm Dr. Joe War, senior lecturer in 19th century literature. I just thought I'd vary the um, emphasis there. Um, and together we are Smith and War. Talking about satire. We are talking about satire. Not proofing the reading. No, do you want to talk about some satire right now? Yes. So, yeah. Partygate, ongoing. Partygate, uh, yeah. As we've alluded to, more so, parties have come out. Yeah. At the, at the time of speaking, to the best of our knowledge, the most recent thing is Dominic Cummings saying that he will swear under oath that Boris Johnson knew about the 20th of May party mm-hmm. um, and agreed that it should go ahead despite the reservations of some other members of staff. Um, doubtless there'll be more. Yeah, yeah. we've had all kinds of iteration of party. There was the quiz, there's choosing wine in the garden, there's suggestion that more parties are happening, isn't there? So Yeah. And I think the other thing that's significant for the context of when you listen to this is that Boris Johnson almost apologised. Well, he said that he would like to apologise, yeah. didn't he? Um, but then didn't. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, in an, in an official statement, and people are, every day, more and more people are mm. campaigning within Parliament for him to yeah. step down. It's another one of my mum's things, that, uh, you know, 10 for a pound, your gaslighters, um, and do you know your postcode? Um, when people say, I can only apologise, mm. then she says, well, go on then. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, good for her. You know, the, what really gets on my nerves is uh, when people say, I, and I understand why it happens, because you need something to sort of clear your throat before you begin, but in a letter or an email where it starts by saying, I'm just writing to... Yeah. So we can discount the fact that you've written it because I'm yeah. Um, and also I'm just writing. Well, I didn't think you were dancing a jig as well. Yeah. Yeah. And but one, yeah, I do it as well. Just thought I'd get in touch to let you know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, you are getting in touch, and that's all you're doing, so you don't need to qualify. And the other but... two, whilst we're on this subject. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Smith and Moore talk about email etiquette. Well, yeah. just idioms that I find irritating. Mm-hmm. One is uh, no offense, but well, I'll yeah. decide. I'll decide if I find it offensive. Yeah. And to be honest. One, not gonna lie. I'm not gonna lie. Is yeah. it? All right. That's what yeah. I was gonna say. Yeah. I'm not gonna lie. Well, I would hope not. Yeah. Okay. I have a relative who says not gonna lie quite a lot. Yeah. I'm not gonna lie. I love her anyway. But okay. I can I can see why one might um find that an irritating um verbal like, tick. It's like I'm glad that we've established that you are writing to me using the written form that you're not going to lie well, to me and that uh, I'm not entitled to just how it. speech works though, yes. isn't it? You say things like to be honest or. Um, to be fair you like do. what are you doing the rest of the time not being fair yeah. in some cases perhaps so but yeah yeah um, that's... sometimes when I say to be fair 
yeah. is after I've been unfairly criticising someone. At, at Do you know Zoom. what people mostly say when they've been unfairly criticising someone and it's gone on for quite a while and everyone's started to feel bad? Then they go, oh, bless them, though. Yeah. Like, what? Why? Why, yeah. when you've just been slagging them off for half an hour, do you yeah. need to say, oh, bless them, though? Yeah. Bless, them. bless what aspect of them? I love them dearly, but... Yeah. So anyway, there's yeah. been lots of satirising parties. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, that was a weird little diversion, wasn't it? That's yeah. I mean. But um, yeah, Partygate, where I, th- I believe one of the most egregious things that they did was all sort of stand around saying, I'm not going to lie, but I've got a suitcase full of wine. Or like, to be fair, though, I've just bought a fridge. I bet they um, did. Yeah. Mm. So, um, yeah. So just wondering if you would like a trunk full of perno, things like that. <laughs> I'm just getting in touch with you to ask if you would um, pass me a bottle opener. Yes, very good. So Cunts! <laughs> they really are. Like, it really is It's It's outrageous. It is egregious. 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 And yeah. this is, so this is some satire of it. Okay. So I've curated some. This isn't the main bit of the episode, listeners. This is just... The main bit. bit? This isn't the main bit of the... Okay. The, this is just an aperitif. So um, what do you make of this? Okay. Have you seen this before? No. Okay. Boris Johnson. Yeah. Oh, Boris Johnson. Yeah. What? Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister. Um, he told everybody to stay at home, yeah? And But... In lockdown, the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, he just went down to a party in lockdown. In lockdown. Did he? He's really naughty now. So we had to go to the naughty centre and tell everybody that he's sorry for going to a party in lockdown. Oh, bless her. Very cute and endearing isn't it, it? Is. so for the listeners who don't know what that is that's a five-year-old girl being recorded by her family as she describes partygate and it was published by well i think it went viral and then got picked up by the sun who mm. published it as part of a feature but it's out of the mouths of babes isn't out it? of the mouths of babes um, yeah and although i wonder what wilf johnson would have to say about it all yeah who's that the baby boris johnson's son yeah yeah, wonder, the, it's not going to be the baby, is it? The baby's <laughs> only two months old, one month old. So yeah. That would be ridiculous. But the baby is, isn't saying anything. I just wanted to start with that one because I think it summarises mm-hmm. the situation. But also, it's an established satirical device, isn't it? To have a child mm-hmm. so who sees through hypocrisy. Yeah, as we wrote about in our yeah article, we did, didn't we? Prince George in that satirical cartoon that the child can speak truth to power in a way mm. that uh, that seems uh, 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 what's the word striking, like, striking or like un. Kempt, un, like un, unfiltered, unmitigated, unfiltered, yeah, yeah, unfiltered, unkempt, unmitigated, unfiltered, yeah. It's the name of my autobiography. Oh, was, Is that you got there say? first, yeah. Okay, what do you think? What's of this one? coming up now? As far as I'm aware, to the best of my knowledge, uh, and we have followed the rules throughout. <laughs> <laughs> David. For me, it's the things that he said that are believable. <laughs> so if I had to pin it down, it would be all of the things that he said after he read the card. After, yeah. yeah. We're going to go lie. Were you telling the truth or was it a lie? <laughs> um, yeah, that was very clever use of the um, the panel show. Would I lie to you? Wasn't it? Where um, because one of the memes that's gone around a lot is like. You know, and there's an image of Bob Mortimer on Would I Lie to You and underneath it'll be like, 
I once went to a party and didn't know it was a party or if it's an actual one it would be like I once set my house on fire with fireworks or whatever yeah. um so yeah that's a a good use of that format to to draw attention to the fact that this sounds so preposterous that it would um it would doubtless elicit a scathing scathing diatribe from angry man David Mitchell on yeah. Would I Lie to You. I think it's a good example of congruity theory of comedy, which we talked about one time mm. with the Nicole. Nicole oh, yeah. When Nicole Graham came and talked yeah. about it, which is where the comedy arises from two things actually being, you wouldn't expect them to, but are extremely similar. Yeah. So the way that Boris Johnson behaves is the like the way that Bob Morton would behave on Would I Lie to You. Okay, I don't have a clip for this next one, but this is the story that is My Name is Boris and This Is Not a Party. Have you heard about this? I don't think so. so this is where 200 protesters turned up outside uh, 10 Downing Street dressed as Boris Oh, Johnson. yeah, and they said this is a work meeting. Yeah, yeah, and they had loads of wine. They got absolutely smashed. They had Boris Johnson yeah. masks on and they chanted outside. I'll put a door. picture in the show notes. <laughs> Yeah, so that was that was good, wasn't it? Satire yeah. on the streets. Yeah, so what do you think the satire has the satire working now is? Well, I mean, it wasn't, I would say it probably wasn't really satire. It was like mild kind of rebellion and rebuke Mm. on the streets. It was mockery um, and fun. I would say that that, as much as I enjoyed it, probably they weren't satirising him. They were just ridiculing him. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it is kind of c- congruity and exaggeration again, which mm. is like, this is how you behave, now we're behaving as a parody of it on yeah. the street. But, uh, Especially in the context of all the conversation about shutting down protests on the streets of London and yeah. um, and things like that. So it's, yeah. Now, the question of is it satire, I think, is particularly pertinent in this next one. So the group of the group led by donkeys, who we've talked about before on the podcast, I don't know how you'd describe them. Are they mm. satirists? Are they political activists? What are they? Mm, more activist, maybe? Activist, yeah. I don't know. It is a difficult one. So in the early phases of Partygate, they put a massive screen outside 10 Downing Street mm. where they presented all of the evidence that suggested a party had happened, but juxtaposed it It was with, narrated uh, by Hastings, wasn't it? Mary, mother of God. Yeah. yeah. Jesus, Mary and the wee donkey. That's it, yeah. yeah. Narrated by him, and they presented all the evidence, and then it ended with... But have you seen the new one of those? No. So they're all like sitting there in the interview and they're putting the email up on screen and saying, exhibit this shows an email from your press secretary. And then they've managed to make it look as though Boris Johnson is sitting at that interview table in the situation that you would see in Line of Duty where they say, like, you have a right to be interviewed by a member of senior than you, blah, blah, blah. Um, but yeah, it's very good. I think oh. that might have just come out today, actually. And did they play that through the window of 10 Downing Street? Uh, well? No, I don't know if they did, actually. Maybe. Yeah. They, they played it on Twitter. Okay. Because the one, the one where they had all the evidence that a party had taken place ended with the police commissioner. Yeah. What's her Christa name? Dick. Saying that they were not going to investigate. Yeah. And, uh, yes. um, would you like to see one more? Have you had enough? Yeah, let's see one more. And then, because I think there's a couple of other things we could talk about in relation to satire here. Yeah. So this is 
from again early party gate but after we mm-hmm. broadcast last podcast it's a jonathan pie video i'm not going to play the whole thing yeah um but i do want to play i'm going to play it a little bit long because to get to the joke have you seen this one before uh i think not the people who have been setting the rules have not been following the rules that's been clear for some time dominic cummings matt hancock number 10 their obstinate refusal to wear face masks in public whilst encouraging us all to do so how can anyone expect anyone else to follow the rules is it any wonder half the country are going like fuck you i won't do what you tell me fuck you i won't do what you tell me fuck you i won't do what you tell me how can you blame anyone for going maskless and unvaccinated into a care home and licking a granny urinating on their knitting fuck you i won't do what you tell me who could blame them because that's essentially what the government is doing to us pissing on our knitting they're on the fucking take, and what they're taking is the fucking piss. How much more of this shit does this country have to take? You can't be accused of breaking the rules if you've just ripped them up. And Boris is just the face of this nasty cabal of parasites, a fraudster, a showman, the figurehead of a dysfunctional political culture whose failure to grasp basic details and whose misjudgment around scandals, whose indecision and laissez-faire attitude towards the most vulnerable in our society has left people dead and dying. Fuck you, I won't do what you tell me. Although I am fully vaccinated and am happy to wear a mask for the time being. Well, that's not satire, is it? That's ranting. It, but that just reminds me, though, before you talk about... Have you seen the cassette boy? Yes. Is, Fuck yeah. you, I won't do what I tell you. Yeah, yeah. there's only one. I saw the yeah. Christmas one. Okay. Yeah, there right. is a new one. Again, I think, today. Um, is it satire? Is it just ranting? I mean, well, it sounds like, like quite a lot of conversations I've had over dinner tables at family meals over Christmas, to be fair. Yeah. That is things that people are just saying, isn't it? It is. I think it's in the... Tra- what he does is in the satirical tradition of the monologue where mm. he's a persona... In the, insofar as it's a monologue. Yeah, and yeah. But like rhetorically, it's quite like the, it's a, it's using exaggeration again, isn't mm. it? It's using a lot of the drawing connection. What I liked about that, I mean, the whole thing goes on a bit, but what I like about that is when you situ, what he does is he situates Partygate in the context of all, and what he does is litany of litany of crimes, isn't mm. it? And I think, but I, I quite like the end when he says, "I won't do it." You tell me, but I will wear a mask and I am vaccinated. But yeah. I do that because I choose to do that. But um, yeah, did you have any other comments on it? Uh, not on this, but I, one of the things that I was thinking is, you know, how we sort of started with the, the kind of like you know back in our early dreadful episodes that should be expunged from <laughs> um, from the internet, and we started with that idea of like you know how can you have satire if you don't know what's real and everything is ludicrous? Can you even satirize? And so on and so forth. And we revisited that in various ways over the last few years. Well, there was a couple of examples of that, weren't there? Because there was the fake monologue from Rosie Holt in the voice of an MP saying, like, I can't be expected to know if I was there or not. I'll have to ask Sue Gray about that. And people thought it was real. Yep. And said they were going to, like, find out what constituency she represented and that they couldn't believe anybody was, you know, that even in the current climate, people were, were that bad. And then there was also when Michael Fabricant kind of tried to defend Boris Johnson, didn't he, and said, um, you know, it would, it was, it will have basically been work, and you can't expect people to stay locked up forever. And um, and so a lot of people then compared that. Basically, Harry Enfield started trending because it looked like a spoof character that Harry Enfield would do. <laughs> um, 
as did that sketch from Little Britain where David Williams is like a disgraced MP and he's making up increasingly ludicrous stories for how he came to um, suddenly find his penis inside the wrong person and um, trying to explain his way out of it in increasingly ridiculous ways. And also, um, my relative on Twitter quote tweeted that Michael Fabricant um, thing and said, I genuinely thought this was like a bad impersonation of Boris Johnson because he's got that like weird blonde hair yeah. so between those two things there's a lot of different levels of people thinking real things are satire and satirical yeah. things are real um, and meanwhile just listening to the absolute kind of ludicrousness of the excuses being given and the, you know Keir Starmer was kind of corpsing wasn't he in PMQs last week saying like does he honestly expect us to believe that he didn't know whether he was at a party or not. Yeah. And we know he was there for 25 minutes wandering around between the trestle tables and the suitcases of wine and just thinking, nope, nothing to see here. Yeah. Not a party. Have you ever had to investigate whether or not you were at a party? Um, no. No? No, I haven't. I think, I think I've always known. Yeah. I mean, sometimes I've been at work events that felt more work event than party but yeah. uh, not the other way around for sure <laughs> what about you so the, yeah that's an interesting disambiguation you might have to investigate whether or not an event that you thought was a party is in fact a party right now about depressing topical segments out of the way what are we going to do for the main bit of the January so bearing in mind everybody out there is already pretty miserable given that it's January it's still a global pandemic energy prices are on the brink of doubling any minute and the BBC is about to lose its funding uh, well the rest of this episode is about the end of the fucking world um, but before we get on to that, don't you have a little bit of news? Oh, do you mean my appearance on ABC Radio National talking about satire with comedian Edwina Start? Yes, I did. No, I didn't. I didn't mean that, but we can come back to that. But um, didn't you want to say something about a balloon of some sort? Yeah, so this is a little big bit of little news. Mm. Um, yeah, long-time listeners might remember that in 2009 we announced that we had formed something called... We were founding members of something called the... York Research Unit for the Study of Satire, YRUSOS. Yep. That's still going. Um, and when that was released, one of the members of the YRUSOS leadership team, Professor mm-hmm. Claire Hind, um, set up something called the Satire Unit, which listeners it's might recall. Literally a unit. A unit yeah. in the same way that a cupboard is a unit, isn't it? So mm. it's a box with a glass front on it, and it says the Satire Unit on it, and it's had three exhibitions in it so far I mean bearing in mind 18 months was yeah at least I think yeah Um, and when it first set up I put my name down to do one of these and it is now the time has come to pass wow so as of tomorrow at the time so the time of recording uh, tomorrow so that's the 19th of, of January my first art installation is going to be is going to be exhibited inside the satire unit so I'm now an artist wow that's amazing an academic a poet playwright and artist um, Dr. Adam J. Smith, that's me. And so, party-goer. Yeah, so would you like to hear about what it is that I've designed? Um, yeah, why not? Go on, tell me about the uh, tell me about the balloon. It's a helium balloon. It's a balloon mm. that I ordered off the internet, customised, and it is black with white writing on it, and the word integrity, and the name of the piece is Institutions, and it's a durational comedic exhibit mm. because it'll be there for three months. Right. And it'll go into the box fully inflated tomorrow, and then three months later will be taken out. What do you think is going to happen to the integrity balloon, Joe? Well, I think it will um, shrivel and die, won't it? Yes. Yeah. All um, power corrupts. Gosh, that's very biting, isn't it? It is um, quite biting. Yeah, that's that's very brave work. 
Um, is that going to be where the unit is at the moment in the um, yes, sort so of the reason thoroughfare? I'm, the reason I'm talking about this is if it's open to the public, if people want to see the exhibition, they can come and see it. It's in the Holgate building at York Central University. The, at the exhibition? Time. Well, yeah, the, 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 the exhibit, I should say. Yeah. Um, it might get moved to the Creative Centre at some point. It might mm. get taken down immediately. Um, it's. I will say it's a satire on institutions, as in institutions mm. of power, not any particular. It's interesting, isn't it? Because if you put a different um, label on it, mm. you know, instead of institutions, if you put like a person's name, or yeah, yeah, or like the government, or yeah, like liberty or democracy or something like that. Yeah. Um, but it's about the platonic mm, idea of institutional power yeah. and its corrupting effects. Or the, the even with the best intentions, mm. you either die a hero or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. Um, so is there literally that. not any other option? No, that's that's what Harvey Dent said. In you the have film, to die a hero or live long enough to. Yeah, but it, I mean that might apply in that film. But do you think that's true in real life? Can you just live a medium amount of time and be normal? I'm yeah. really hoping that you can. But there is that. That's st- what I want to do. But then there's that question of like, if you were confronted with your 16 year old self, would they be shocked to discover that you'd become quite conservative and and perhaps decided to moderate some of your radical views? No, because I haven't. No, okay. That's so, fair enough yeah. then. Yeah, good for you. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> they'd, they'd love me. They, yeah, yeah they'd, they'd be like, wow, not going to lie, future Joe. You're, um, you nailed it. Yeah, you're the best. Can't, can't wait to be you. That's what they'd say. They wouldn't say that. <laughs> um, um, yes, yeah. yeah, so there we go. That's the, that's the Sato balloon. Yeah, well done. That sounds really good. Thank go you. and Go take a peek, um, everybody. Yeah. Yeah, so um, what was the other thing? Yeah, so before Christmas, we were both approached to be interviewed for an episode of a radio programme, which is also broadcast as a podcast called Future Tense, which goes out on ABC National Radio in Australia and East Asia. Enormous audience. Mm. And we decided that I would do that interview because you already had a media engagement, which we talked about in the last episode, didn't we? Yeah. Um, yeah, so it was an interview. I spoke for half an hour to a researcher called Edwina Stott, who's also a comedian. You can follow her on Twitter about the future of satire the effectiveness of satire I like how you paused there in case it was going to be the future of something else yeah about the future of I don't know Omicron yeah (laughs) but there's a lot of good there's a lot of interesting questions I mean Mm. we started obviously from the position of how can you do satire in a time like this how can Mm. you do satire in a time where Boris Johnson well you can't people will think you're real and if you try and be real people will think you're satire but I guess you didn't know any of that then no and uh, how can you do satire on social media when everyone reads everything literally takes things out of context is Mm. uh, there's dividends from to presenting yourself as being sensitive to certain things and and how how on earth do you do satire in that environment and what is the future of satire going to look like and uh and i said some stuff that i didn't know i was going to say wow Were you... <laughs> okay what's what happened well just like some of the conclusions that occurred to me whilst we were talking is because she said what's what does current recent satire look like and what was in my head because we just recorded our last episode was pandemonium by amanda Bianucci mm-hmm. and dead souls by sam rivieri um, which are both quite traditional written forms of satire that might be considered quite uh, elite. I mean, that one's a, mm. one's an eighteenth <laughs> poem in the style of eighteenth yeah. century satire. Um, so classical versions of satire. And then she said, "Well, how is that going to change hearts and minds for the people who are angry on Twitter?" And I was like, "It's not going to, because it's not for them." Mm. And then it occurred to me, like, satire isn't going to die because Twitter can't tolerate it. Twenty percent of the population is on Twitter. Eighty percent of the population are maybe inclined to read satire in, in a book from Waterstones. Um, 
And, yeah, and I like how you're assuming that's the other 20%. Well, like, I mean, yeah. Yeah, yeah, there is no overlap between people who would buy Pandemonium and people who would be on but Twitter. But then that's also precisely the point as well, isn't it? Yeah. Which is that people just want something in the middle. Um, yeah. But, uh, but yeah, I was like, they're not trying to change it. And also she said, well, you're not going to change anything right in a an epic satire in the style of Jonathan Swift. I was like, well, you're not going to change anything. Style of Jonathan was John Milton. Uh, yeah. You're yeah. A pathetic parody of John Milton is not going to change the way that people feel about Boris Johnson. But then I was like, but then, you know, the effects of satire are so much more diffuse and different, aren't they? Like mm. the, the catharsis of reading it, even if it just destabilises the idea in the mind of one reader, it's technically achieved the goal of satire. So, yeah, so we had an interesting, interesting conversation. And that sounds really good, yeah. yeah. Do you think that any of the any of the satirical things or semi-satirical things like people wearing Boris Johnson masks and standing outside Downing Street and shouting this is a work event do you think any of them could be like ascribed with any with having changed anything or being like more significant than any of the rest um, I'm not sure I mean if they make people feel better that other people are also outraged mm. by this then that would meet the criteria of having made a difference in someone's life wouldn't it like it's less frustrating yeah. to realise. I mean, the problem, the thing about that particular case is, my dad asked me about this actually, and I said, well, as long as people are satirising Boris Johnson, he's probably safe, isn't he? Because you turn to you record, you turn to satire when nothing else, when nothing mm. works, and it's sort of the revelation that no matter what this man does or how much people complain about it, he just continues, starts to manifest itself in satirical expression. Because you need to get out of your system somehow. Yeah, um, I suppose like the the one that I said I didn't wasn't one hundred percent convinced was satire. The people in the masks outside Downing Street. Yeah, that's probably got the most. It it's it does have that element of like let's all get together and agree that he's a dick and like isn't it cheering to to be out here like mocking him as a group activity, but that's the kind of image that goes viral and not just in this country mm. and then you know if it if it perhaps starts to look as though this prime minister is a glow a, a gloak a joke yeah. globally yeah then maybe that has the potential to I change mean, something if he if he can't go out of his house without people going oh, I'm Boris Johnson, I'm yeah. going to work a bit, like maybe that actually yeah. makes more of a difference i mean is that the goal with this that in that particular instant is to make his position untenable like that it comes to a point where it actually actively disadvantages the nation to have him as prime minister because it's so toxic well then... i don't know i don't know if it is or not if they just kind of wanted to go and, and mock him or if um i don't know mm. because like extinction rebellion mm. weren't trying to like satirize road users by gluing themselves to the road were they they were just trying to I don't know, be annoying. No, but speaking of Extinction Rebellion and also speaking of Australia, home of ABC Radio National, does mm. is leading us in the right way of what this episode is supposed to be about, isn't it? I was talking about what this episode is supposed to be about. Yeah, it's yeah. satire, but yes, well, I'm glad you brought that up because Australia is actually going to be a theme in this next segment of the podcast about satire and the end of the world, isn't it? I knew you were going to say that. Because we're going to, I know you because you wrote it, because we're going to talk now about two satirical texts treating that very subject, and one of those is Ben Elton's 1989 novel, Stark, which is set almost entirely in Australia. Yes. And the other, which I think we should do first, because I've seen the listener retention statistics for this podcast, and I think this one is perhaps the most urgently topical, is the very recent Netflix original movie, Don't Look Up. Okay. 
So, we'll start with Don't Look Up. Uh, God, that flowed naturally, didn't it? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, Don't Look Up. Let's talk about Don't Look so Up, which came about. out. Um, well, it's about two astronomers, um, one played by Leonardo DiCaprio and a PhD student called, uh, played by Jennifer Lawrence, um, are having to try and kind of warn the world and warn the world, world's media that um, a comet is on its way, which is absolutely, definitely going to destroy planet Earth. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, it seems like they might be able to shove it off course with nuclear weapons but then that gets scuppered and it it lands anyway mm-hmm. and and it's the end of the world yeah. yeah so it came out on the 10th of december 2021 directed by adam mckay who also directed the film vice in 2018 mm-hmm. which we saw at the cinema and likes didn't we i believe so yeah the big short from 2015 and Step Brothers, the Will Ferrell vehicle. From I like that. <laughs> it's a good <laughs> film, yeah. Um, yes, so that's what he did. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we both watched this, didn't we? Yeah, uh, respectively, satirical. over Christmas. Um, yeah, I do think it's satirical. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I think it's, it's satirising governments and leadership and institutions and the media and um, everybody from the elite to the non-elite. Like that moment where it's, it's kind of a little bit farcical, isn't it? But where... They can see the comet in the sky, and Jennifer Lawrence, I think it is, goes around to her parents' house and wants to come in, and they say, like, oh, don't bring any of your doom-mongering. We're in favour of the job opportunities the comet will bring. Yeah. Um, and you kind of think, well, that's sort of daft because nobody would actually say that. Yeah. So clearly yeah. you're saying something about something else yeah um that doesn't it's not quite subtle enough but also like i laughed yeah so that was like surreally funny so the premise of the meteor coming to earth and then the people of earth or the leaders of earth company business persuading themselves that actually that's the best thing and persuading Mm. and the well then she says that meryl streep the president says well i think what we should do right now is sit tight and assess doesn't she yeah so i mean the comet basically represents harm (laughs) well i think it, it it seems like they had climate change in mind, didn't they? And yeah. a lot of people understood it as being about climate change. And I think he's said, mm-hmm. hasn't he, that it's about climate change. Yeah. But it's also sort of a metaphor for anything, like you say, yeah. harm, anything that is being ignored. Um, and, it, and then it's almost sort of like a literalization of a metaphor, isn't it? That yeah. it's, it, you could say all of those things are like something that's going to hit. Um, you know, we talk about yeah. climate change or viruses as something that's going to hit and wipe people out and so on. Yeah. And then this does a kind of slightly surreal literalization of that by yeah. making it actually a great big flaming yeah. meteor that's going to smash into yeah. us and kill everybody. And so we talk about satire as targeting something that it thinks is dangerous or ridiculous um, and using exaggeration as a, as a primary technique. I thought this was a fantastic example of that because mm. having them trying to implore people to take notice of the fact that a great big fiery meteor comet is not actually good news for the people of Earth. Mm. It, it literally, like you say, literalizes that in a way that's really quite striking. There was one moment where that I thought that would only happen with a meteor and if this was a real issue, I can't think what the analogy would be. Uh, which was when the sort of um, I don't know how you describe them, but like the Trump supporting MAGA hat wearing mm. people are all campaigning because they want to mine the comet and they think the comet's good for us, and they're calling everyone like libtards for yeah. trying to go. And then one of them turns around with the hat on that says "Don't look up," yeah, which looks like a MAGA hat, and he sees the meteor coming, and then he's like, "Oh my God, they're lying to us! It's a lie!" Yeah. I don't know what the equivalent would be. It... <laughs> yeah, it would. It would have to be the moment at which 
someone you might satirize like a climate change denier or an anti-vaxxer or is it it's sort of like how there's a lot of gleeful possibly semi-apocryphal stories about how people who refused the vaccine Mm. at the very last minute before they're about to be intubated are like please let me have the vaccine now now i realize that covid is bad and like i'm sure there's a lot of anti-vax regret yeah. amongst people who go on to be up but there's a certain amount of glee around the stories of them isn't there were there? stories weren't there about people again in america holding like covid parties in yeah. the pandemic so they could get infected and then dying yeah um, not funny but um, no yeah so there, there was that i mean the whole a lot of the chatter immediately when i when this came out just before christmas was people saying like this is such a great Mm. not critics but people saying this is exactly like this is about the pandemic it's about COVID-19 but it wasn't yeah. it was written and mostly filmed before yeah. the pandemic but but we watch it with that in mind and you can't really ever change that can you yeah so especially because it was at the at the sort of peak of Omicron anxiety wasn't yeah. it and yeah. so it felt like Leonardo DiCaprio bit... is Chris Whitty <laughs> maybe so who's Jennifer Lawrence uh someone who works for sage a phd student no because she's she's not like overestimating anything or making like ludicrously um exaggerated claims about what's gonna happen is she she's right should would she be like someone at oxford who works on the oxford vaccine she could be um she could be sarah gilbert but if somebody came in and like smashed all of her test tubes and said you don't need a vaccine yeah yeah. So that's the the bit the bit bones of the thing. But mm. I felt like there was loads of other sub targets as you went through. That yeah. Everything goes gets satirised, doesn't it? Media, social media, popularism, the president. What do you think of the president played by? Is it Meryl Streep? Um, I I wouldn't vote for her. No. I have to say, yeah, yeah. I thought she was, thought she was a bad sort. Yeah. Um, but yeah, if you mean what do I think of Meryl Streep in the role, I thought she was really good. Okay. Um, yeah. I thought there was some yeah it. There were some good observations or interesting points there that weren't overtly to do with all the kind of not looking up stuff. Like when she said, I gave up smoking for the polls, but then I realised that if I had a crafty cigarette, then actually my ratings went up, not yeah. down. Um, yeah, uh, so there was, there was some good kind of lesser observations in there and really um, spot on about like how those kind of breakfast TV shows work. Don't, I don't suppose you saw BBC Breakfast this morning. I did not. So the two of them were on the sofa in, in between the sport and the weather talking about some comet that's out there that's like... And they were talking about like how, how many double-decker buses it was the size of and stuff. Yeah. And then they explicitly said, like, it's really far away, it's not a threat. And then um, Dan said, this is not the moment in Don't Look Up yeah. where the presenters are being stupid and underestimating the threat. Because, and that is what I was thinking the whole time I was listening to them. It's like, did the, like, yeah. I, this is a bit much well, too like there was a story a couple of weeks ago it might even be the it must be the same one about a meteor coming to earth and the plan was to shoot at another smaller meteor and then right. cause a ripple effect where that would that's not one. an old episode of red dwarf you're thinking no, no, of no. is it yeah but it was like that this is going to hit another one that hits another one that hits another one that eventually hits the one they're trying to move and my foot and they said it's basically like uh, we're playing a space version of 10 pin bowling right and i was like well, if anything the sports shorthand or the hobby shorthand should be it's like playing pool or mm. something uh, so that occurred to me but then also uh, i thought what who is deciding who has jurisdiction over space who's decided that it's okay to start like knocking these yeah. rocks around because that could have it's the sort of thing that might be subject to the law of unintended consequences you would think isn't it it's yeah. like oh fuck like we potted the sun yeah and yeah. then it makes you think like if America potted the sun like 
We're just trying oh, to I'd be so cross. Well, it's trying yeah. to be like, well, hang on, we never signed off on that. I mean, there's a bit in this... Oh, no, we're dead. Yeah. There's a bit in this film, isn't there, where it, they have to mention the fact that America has its plan, but then, like, China, Australia, England, they all have their own plan, which, mm. unfortunately, for the purposes of this film, goes wrong, so they can carry on. But, yeah, who has jurisdiction over space matters? I don't know. I don't know. But coming back to the president, um, mm. it felt to me like they were going out of their way to to not let people say they were overtly just taking the piss out of Donald Trump by having it as a mm. woman. But that... But because people it. always want to make it in films and TV, they want to avoid any accusation like we're being this president, we're being that president. It's a comment on them. So the most easy way to avoid that is to have a woman president. Yeah. So it's set in this weird future where there might actually be a woman president but invariably that doesn't turn out to really yeah. be a particularly good thing. So yeah. it's a bit unfortunate, isn't it, that the way to say, this isn't the real world, this isn't now, this isn't any president you could possibly think of, and you know how you know that? It's a lady. Yeah. But it's in a future where women can become presidents, which, coincidentally or not, is a shitty place you wouldn't yeah, want to yeah. live. But then having her as a woman changes like the whole matrix of mm. the you know the kinds of relationships and perceptions that she exists in, much like the Naomi Alderman novel The Power, mm. like um, because she doesn't go around grabbing men in the cock in the way that Donald <laughs> Trump might go around grabbing people in the pussy. But then she is implicated in having an affair with some senator, isn't she? Yes. Yeah. Um, but then, but then there are Trumpy things about her, like that MAGA hat type things. Also, like having her son as her chief of staff. Yeah. Um, and then there's points where he was Trumpy wasn't it like when he's doing his rally and he's saying yeah. Yeah, we need to not listen to these scientists because they're bad posh people we're good rich people you got to not listen to the bad rich people that are trying to exploit you at which point she actually says tone it down a bit doesn't she yeah like she's uncomfortable about the, the sort of Trump rhetoric so I thought all of that was interesting my other thought about the president was it reminded me of Vice where um, that's got w, George W. Bush in it but played as a kind of Mr. Bean style idiot who you can't help feeling some sympathy for because he's just so stupid I felt like that got a bit we had a bit of that here particularly when she goes on the plane towards the end and forgets that she's taken her not taken her she's left her son behind yeah. to die um, and it's the point where it's like well so the suggestion is the reason this president is terrible is because she's an idiot not necessarily because she's an idiot and she's motivated by populism and the desire to appease everyone and be popular well and also she's like fundamentally self-serving isn't she and that's one of the kind of damning mm. moments of the film where you realise in this case and I think there is a good parallel with climate change here. Of course they don't really care that much. Of course they're not particularly invested in sorting out because they've got a plan B mm. um, that the rest of humanity doesn't have. And that comes across quite strongly, doesn't it? And yeah. that explains everything about why she's been like, meh, sit tight, yeah. who knows. What did you think to the John Rylands character and all of the business about tech? Um, well, it was very much kind of played for laughs and exaggerated, wasn't it, um, his character? I And so I responded to it with laughs. Yeah. Um, and just, yeah, I just, I mean, this is the thing. Like, people, reviewers had a problem with this film and, uh, and a lot of people enjoyed it and a lot of people um, found it lacking in various ways and I think maybe it's massively different depending what you go to it for and in what context you're watching it and if you're thinking oh that's like two and a half hours long and we're in that sort of weird hammock between Christmas and New Year this is the exact time when I want to just watch something um, Netflixy and shiny and intermittently funny and then also moving and that's what you're asking of this show then that's that's all there for you Mm. but then the response suggests that people were 
hoping for more and that maybe my expectations were were a bit more tempered yeah i mean i i thought that was an interesting he was an interesting character because the first the first time we encounter him he's made an app that if you encounter negative emotion it will give you something to make you happy so if you get a kid and you get told like told off you can look at it it'll show you a happy panda or whatever and then they would have they would have stopped the meteor with a sort of state-sponsored campaign if it hadn't been for his intervention at the last minute to say let me take this in-house and amazon or sort it or whatever the equivalent business is and that's where things start to really go wrong so i thought that set up an interesting tension between like private enterprise and mm. the mechanics of state and uh, and things start to go wrong i'm in my opinion and i think people some people think differently about this bit of the film but where you know leonardo DiCaprio turns up and he says i've looked at the plans for your you're giving your plan to lots of academics and they've all said this is really catastrophic don't do it and then he gets really defensive and he has a go at leonardo DiCaprio, does a character assassination and says my scientists in-house have looked at it now they're also scientists I mentioned this because I think it comes back in Stark. They're also scientists, but because they're on the payroll, they are going to draw a conclusion that he wants to think is the point the film is making. Yeah. But then it's not as easy as just going um, state state organised stuff is better than private stuff because oftentimes state stuff doesn't work because mm. private capital, it doesn't have the sort of resource or ambition or goals of private enterprise. So it just left me thinking what would be the best outcome of this film. Yeah, that's an interesting response compared to mine, which is like I just wanted to watch something for a bit whilst the needles were falling off the tree and eating <laughs> Ferrero Rocher. And yeah. you're like, oh, there's a lot of questions about private enterprise status. <laughs> I mean, you're, you're right. That's just a, that's a better and cleverer response. Um, yeah, and I suppose that is, you know, th- there's echoes of that in debates about about the the relative merits of different vaccines, yeah. isn't there? That yeah. you've got um, AstraZeneca as opposed to well, this, Pfizer yeah. or Moderna. I mean, the way that I, this sort of played out in my own head, and I really don't know if I agree with this, let, listeners, let me know if you do, is that the value of having something like a university sector is that they are, in theory, more impartial than private business, in that they're not necessarily... They've not been told what to find, basically. Um, mm. So, But then given the commercialization in higher education and the sort of customer-oriented service that it delivers and the competition it has, to what extent are universities still uh, and well, they ever an impartial judge? I mean, they're, they're not pure, are they? Like, no. there, are, there are things that editors and reviewers might guide you towards or guide you away from. But I think, like, we, we both know from times when you might be interviewed by or engaged with private enterprise in the form of like tv or radio or something you're asked to write where they'll kind of tell you what the what it is they're looking for we want something that just talks about this we want Mm. something that explains why that um whereas you might think that that thing isn't the case or requires a lot more nuance which which doesn't happen like you know a, a journal or a publisher won't say like i want you to write like a bullshit thing that's wrong because i've decided there's a market for it um but that can happen in in other contexts where where you know that thing is really not the point and not quite right yeah um yeah yeah i agree i mean it sort of sets up a binary i think in the film between private private enterprise and industry and then these bodies that are supposed to be that the film sees as, as more pure such as 
universities or editorial yeah. standards. And one of the points the film is making is that when you take those, if for want of a better word, gatekeepers and systems and peer review processes away, you end up in a situation where anything can get through and everyone ends up campaigning for a meteor to kill them. So, to kill them. But I can see why some people might be annoyed by that. If they're like, well, science isn't pure, academic isn't pure, academia isn't pure, nothing is pure. It's all just diff- different shades of capitalism in the current world. Well, I don't think that's really true, is it? Because if, you know, in most instances in academia, when you write something or publish it, not only are you not getting paid for doing that, you're doing it on your own time and off your own yeah. dollar. Obviously, you know, ideally you you are salaried as well, but that's not related to that so you you can't be pushed in a certain direction because somebody else is like responsible for your ability to pay your mortgage or whatever for example whereas if you're employed at the university of amazon Mm. or you know if you were elon musk's personal 18th centuryist yeah then he would want you to say things about the 18th century that that he deemed appropriate and so yeah i mean i think it's a mistake it would be a mistake to think that everything in academia is pure and and uh, like even the notion of like truth in most other than whether or not it's true that a comet is going to smash into the earth you know most academic disciplines truth is a kind of contested idea Mm. anyway um but i think you you're going to make a better fist of producing something with integrity and that is backed up by research and that doesn't conveniently ignore the things that your paymaster wants you to ignore if you're within that kind of context than if you're employed by Google or Amazon or I don't know name another bad company but um, obviously people tell scientists and other academics to ignore certain things and prioritize other things when money's involved and that is what happens when money's involved in anything isn't it amen yeah i agree and my main takeaway from the film is that oversight is good yeah independent scrutiny is good if you can get it yeah um so yeah so that was quite quite deep wasn't it yeah we'll come back those conversations come back but before then the reception of the film uh, this film, I think I was reading something that said a lot of the sort of uh, pundits assumed that the most controversial film this Christmas was going to be The Matrix Resurrections, which went out of its way to confound expectations, but it was in fact Don't Look Up. Mm. Uh, massively divisive, it, it seems, for critics, wasn't it? Yeah, it seems like, I mean, what would you say are the general points of consensus in the criticism? I think it's. Um, I mean, the Guardian had at least four different bad they reviews do. of it, didn't they? they <laughs> like, it's the Thursday bad review of yeah. Don't Look Up. So it's a sense that it's a bit heavy-handed. Yeah. But I think you can address that by the idea of like the literalising of the metaphor. Mm. Um, it, of course, it's heavy-handed. Yeah. Um, an idea that it's it was kind of a bit root one and a bit condescending. Um, Smug is a word that comes yeah. up sometimes. Yeah. Smug and condescending. Do you think um, there's any... Overly simplistic? Mm. I mean, I think it comes back to what you were saying, which is... The thing that frustrates me about this first barrage of reviews, where they're saying that it's basic, that it's simplistic, that it's smug, that it's condescending, it is I just feel like it's held to a different standard to any other genre. Mm. Like, I feel like... When... Once you're doing satire and you're doing apocalyptic satire there are maybe more expectations of how you should do that mm, yeah um, and also one, I think a lot of the accusations about being smug or as it says in the Guardian on the 27th of December uh, Charles Bramsko complains that Adam McKay 
is uh, smugly superior to the viewer. Mm. I think one of the key differences is that with satire, more than other genres, it has an authorial intention that's stated, isn't it? There's something yeah. that Adam McKay thinks is the matter, yeah, and he, that he and worthy of ridicule that's going to affect a lot of people watching. And that that review, as did a few others, commented on the sheer volume of um, big name celebrities mm. in the film, didn't they? So I don't know if people would have preferred a kind of smaller budget more unknowns in the main roles like would that have made it feel more real whereas when it's Jennifer Lawrence and Leonardo DiCaprio and Meryl Streep um, perhaps that feels almost like too playful and not serious enough Is, is the use of celebrities causing a problem for the message and yeah. then also there were some some reviews seem to feel it was hypocritical to kind of satirise celebrity but also have Ariana Grande yeah. in the in the film well there's a bit where and I, you know, I think the film is maybe making a point about how we shouldn't be so binary in our arguments but they, they satirise the do look up campaign as well as the mm. don't look up campaign and there's a, I can't remember who it is but there's a celebrity on there who's rushed a film out that's basically about how you should look up and stuff and the joke is that they've they've really just done a focus group and rushed this out because they know people watch it which is arguably what this film is doing it, like it's playing to the audience of people who are concerned about the climate and want to demonstrate that in a way which has very little impact on their daily lives such yeah. as watching and advocating a film so yeah it's complicated <laughs> yeah and then uh after that comes yeah. the reception to the reception i've seen tweets saying like you know am i the only person i feel like i need a, a little support group because i do enjoy yeah. don't look up and then people saying oh, i need a support group because I didn't enjoy Don't Look Up and I yeah. feel like I'm in the minority. Yeah. Um, but yeah, then, then there's a bit of a backlash to to some of the... Yeah, I mean, we're five or six weeks now into the aftermath of the film having mm. come out and I did a new a Google search for Don't Look Up News today and there's articles like this one which had by Harry Cockburn in The Independent on the 10th of January. I think that why, name is usually pronounced Coburn. Harry Coburn in The Independent on the 10th of January. Why are people... 2022... Uh, why are people so angry with film critics for reviews of Don't Look Up? And his whole article article is about the divergence between what critics have said and what audiences have said mm. and why the critics might be wrong. And it says that Don't Look Up has been Netflix's most successful project to date, which is quite extraordinary, yeah. isn't it? Um, what, even more than Bridgerton? Even more than Bridgerton? Even more than Emily in Paris? Even more than Squid Games? Even more yeah. than um, all of those ones? Oh, yeah. The one about the seafood? All of them. So it offers some of the it says it offers some of the broad coherence and best basic truths we're all crying out for. Yet there's palpable anger at many of the bad reviews of Don't Look Up. So people are angry at the bad reviews. It talks about how the film offers no redemption, but also says it, it thinks the critics have got it wrong. And concludes, what's suddenly emerging is a disgust at this narrow way of thinking. A huge number of responses to the film's poor reviews say that the critics have missed the point. They're right. Why is it that scientists and environmental campaigners are better able to articulate why the film was so powerful than film critics? It's because the lens through which they view the world suddenly overlaps with the wider concerns people have about the state of the world, not the state of the cinema. Mm. So they're saying the film the film critics might have looked at it as any normal film and critiqued the script, script writing, the acting, the jokes, the directing, all that stuff. But mm. what this person is saying is the film is about so much more. It's about the state of the world. Yeah, I mean that's kind of patronising, isn't it? <laughs> that like, oh, the people we just we just want to watch like things about the state of the world, and um, we're not equipped to talk about soundtracks and actors and directing. Yeah. And if a joke is heavy-handed, we just um, we just want to watch big things that worry us. I don't know, but then I mean there were like George Monbiot said 
that spoke well of it, didn't he? Yeah. On, on, where he tweeted well of it and said yeah. that you know he could really relate to, yeah, to how those scientists would four, have felt. Four star review in the in Empire magazine as well. Uh, yeah, the reporter gave it a five star review. So I, it's unusual to see something that that was watched so much and a lot of people that that has such a fairly universally negative first mm. tranche of, of reviews, isn't it? And it does make me wonder, like, what people were were hoping it would be or thinking it could be that yeah. they weren't getting from it. What did you think to the end of the film? Oh, I just, like, sat in silence and sort of watched it with a quivering lower lip. <laughs> oh, yeah. do you mean the very, very end all of the of film? It, all of the final bits. Yeah, I mean, the, the last bits were... I mean, I, I... Oh, well, maybe, like, I'm the... um, Maybe I'm the idiot. But, I mean, when Leonardo DiCaprio and family were sitting around the table and just really trying hard to find more things to say about coffee... Um, and I think his last line is like, "We really had it pretty good, if you think about it." Like, I, yeah, are these people made of stone? That <laughs> yeah. was, I thought that was really good. Yeah. Uh, and then I thought that it was quite funny when they land on the other planet that they've been searching for for like thousands of years and immediately get eaten by the yeah. um, hostile inhabitants. It's interesting because I was reading at the time about satire in irresolution. So if if things get tied up in a satire, it, this, the argument is it's no longer satirical because satire is supposed to disrupt, not bring closure. So when they all got destroyed at the end, I thought, ah, well, that's a kind of it's depressing, but it's a kind of closure mm. that I wasn't expecting. But then it transpires that some of the, the like the super rich have escaped and found a planet. But then they basically get killed by a mutant emo, emu. Yeah, they? So after okay, about so like two seconds. Yeah. But then the very end of the credits, the president's son emerges from the wreckage and has survived. Um, and he's the most venal, nastiest piece of shit in the whole film. So it, so it sustains he's that like irresolution. He's like a little cockroach he is. surviving yeah. the apocalypse. Yeah, so so we did go back to that irresolution. Oh, 100% classic satire. Yeah, and I don't know. I'd rather watch that than the frigging Matrix any day of the week. Well, or Bridgerton seen... or Emily in Paris <laughs> even though I do watch those things yeah but yeah I, I've seen The Matrix and I enjoy Don't Look Up More yeah so when this came out yeah I said that it reminded me of Ben Elton Stark and asked you if you'd ever read that and mm. you dutifully have gone and read that yeah. I haven't read it for a really long time so I'm not remembering everything about it but um, yeah so Stark Ben Elton's very first novel yeah. in 1989 about um, comparable but quite different concerns <laughs> it is yeah so in this one we meet a character called cj uh who is a bit of a down and out a bit of a hip unemployed hipster i suppose we call mm. him now but he's got he, he's quite interested in how he looks and stuff not that interested in values but he's prepared to seem like he does and he ends up getting involved with a ecological justice activist group uh based uh, which is a, a big fat man i don't know what nice way to say that uh, a big fat hippie man um, and a very muscular hippie man who had his penis and balls blown off in Vietnam and a beautiful woman called Rachel which is basically CJ's motivation for getting involved with them and they stumble upon a global conspiracy uh, which we also follow through the narrative of a character called Sly Moorcock who's a or more co, I suppose you might say, who's <laughs> um, a, a captain of industry, a, a, a rec- like a really reckless, shitty capitalist who makes all his money by stripping assets from other companies and buying and selling and at great disadvantage to everyone else. He's, he becomes involved in this thing called the Stark Conspiracy, which is basically all of the millionaires in the world, all of the billionaires in the world are in a conspiracy to basically speed up the ecological devastation of the planet um, to have it for themselves. I won't go into the reasons the end game of their conspiracy I don't want to spoil it for anyone but they are trying to bankrupt the world and 
and basically reduce the population so that they can share the resources among themselves. So it's about environmental catastrophe, but in this version of events, there is there is an actual global conspiracy of capitalists who are going out of their way to ruin the lives of billions of people. Yeah, to bring um, about total toxic overload, isn't it? That's right, yeah. yeah. And to bring about total toxic overload, and you find out that, that governments are unwittingly in league with them and sciences and they're pulling all the strings it made me think like there's lots of parts of the film but lots of parts of the novel which are and i'll talk more about this like quite frighteningly recognizable it's like that's a conversation i had yesterday that kind Mm. of thing but i feel like something that there's a few things that wouldn't age so well and i I mean the conspiracy here is basically it's not a million miles away from QAnon. Mm. it's like what and, and also it's quite um naive sounds nasty but like quite confident to imagine that the way things are the way the reason things are the way they are is because there's an evil cabal of yeah people who actually are intentionally evil rather than the mess that is neoliberal capitalism yeah. and, and all of that yeah um, it, it, to imagine capitalism as being sort of basically embodied and enacted by a select group a nameable identifiable distinct discrete group mm. as opposed to a thing we all participate in is sort of a comforting fiction isn't yeah. it yeah but a device that i really like in this novel is what i've called in the script epic simile mm-hmm. which might make some sense to some listeners so that's where in an epic poem you get a massive digression about a specific detail and it does that quite a lot so to the reason it does it is to to take something really specific in our quotidian lives and then put it within this global network of yeah of systems so for instance there's a character in it called linda who's a journalist and there's a very a throwaway scene where she goes to the mail uh, goes to her front doorstep picks up the mail takes out the one thing that's actually important and then just drops the rest of it in the bin and then you get like five or six pages describing where that paper came from how it was made how the forests where it was made are suffering because of acid rain because of the, you know the, the people who are employed on a very low wage to process that paper and all of the things that happened to that bit of paper before she decides that it, she's not even going to read it and it, it does that a few times the, the, there's reference about halfway through the book to a phenomenon that the scientists who work for the evil cabal of shits uh, called the avalanche effect which is you know it seems like oh we'll just fuck over the environment here and you don't imagine what the consequences are going to be but it could affect someone on the other side of the planet in a really negative way so i thought that was quite that's quite when those moments mm. happen they're quite interesting um and you get that same tension between public interest uh, private interest and the public wheel um for example there's just one i'm not going to read those out but i just want to read a quick bit out if i can find it um so this is about one of the scientists who works for a group called the Doomsday Group who don't realise but they actually work for the Stark Conspiracy. And it, the scientist said he, w- he was a worried and frustrated man, the head of the Doomsday Group. He, like all those individuals in Armageddon scenario research, was under the impression that the world's industrialists employed him that they might act upon the information that he gave them. And yet he saw no action, he saw no efforts at change. He might as well have not said a word. And it just reminded me about that, that, what we were saying earlier about universities and stuff like that, which mm. is just because you've done the research in an inverted commas like pure empirical way doesn't mean that it's going to be used by private business yeah uh, yeah so in, in a way that is what you intended um so that's all the environment stuff. So there's a couple of things that i thought were also strangely prescient like for example a lot of the jokes in the first quarter of the novel are at the expense of a character called karen yeah which is uh something we've talked about before isn't it I, I wouldn't say that we're cynical about the Karen meme. I'd say that we are outright hostile towards it. Yeah, I'm, I'm um, anti the Karen meme, I think. But Karen in this yeah. one is, is a young woman in her mid-twenties who's very false and 
says lots of cliched things and is really interested in self-care and being tactile. And one of the characteristics that she has, which I thought was quite well observed, is that she always refers to the names of people you don't know. Like, I've got to go now because I've got a meeting with Kevin. Yeah. And of course, and the, the point is to make you feel... That is quite well observed, isn't yeah. it? I can think of, of people doing that but and it, it being me... annoying. So if she's in her mid-20s in 1989, she she would now be too old to be a Karen, probably, yeah. wouldn't she? I did but... wonder if that's something that's happened, which is that it's the same cross-section of women that mm. just got older. How um, dare they? Yeah. And then there's uh, hip language, but yeah. the, which which actually is quite resonant again. So when they talk about things being like, that's not my vibe, or that's got so-and-so energy, these are all phrases that have come back now, and they require quite a funny way um another thought that i had and i've been talking for ages another thought that i had was just how would this novel fare now when everyone is quite well in the conversation we had with cat rosenfield it sounded like the cultural climate is one in which people are not too keen to disambiguate between the voice of the narrator and the voice of the author yeah because one of the things that he does a lot is he uses characters as focalizers and he uses a technique that we talk to our students about called free and direct discourse where the narrative voice is almost infected by the voice of the character and it leads to him saying a lot of things which are profoundly misogynistic, homophobic, like the amount, like quite strikingly homophobic. Um, but it's not the voice of Ben Elton, it's the voice of Sly Moorcock or whatever. I think if you were to watch Ben Elton stand up from the 80s now, you would probably be surprised by how much of it wouldn't seem like a good idea mm, today it, even though he's you know he's always been thought of as like the most self-consciously deliberately you know he was one of the alternative comedians he was probably the alternative comedian that most people would name if asked yeah. to name one it was all about being right on and being a lefty and all the rest of it yeah. but there are bits that i would yeah. imagine wouldn't wouldn't I mean, sit yeah. right now something that's been quite striking it's not a nice observation it is how systemic homophobic comments were. Mm. Um, so, for example, so in the novel, you sometimes have Sly, Sly as the focaliser and he speaks in this language of homophobic slurs and misogynistic language. Like, oh, openly, he'll be saying, like, that bitch will be better off in the kitchen and stuff like that. CJ, who I think is supposed to be slightly more sympathetic, I think also has some pretty uh, uncomfortable attitudes, particularly around his adoration of Rachel and how his motivation for everything is he, quote, just wants to get his hands up at top. But then I was watching, there's a TV adaptation from 1993... Um, which is on YouTube, and I was watching that, and that's interesting in different ways. But um, they say things like, there's one bit where Rachel Rachel um, like dares him to, she steals a gun off of a police officer, and then gives it to him, and then he has to like get it back in the police officer's holster before he gets arrested, basically. And as he's like putting the gun in the holster, the guy turns around, and he's like, good day, mate, what you doing around my asshole? You're not some kind of pillow biter, are you? And like this kind of thing. And... Um, and I say, I don't feel like that. That's just in there because that's just in the language. Like it's yeah. quite. Um, that's all quite uncomfortable. But yeah, so interesting novel. Thanks for recommending it. Um, yeah, um, no problem. So would it, would you recommend it? Yeah, I think it's worth in, worth reading. It, it goes. Some of it's very weak. Like some. Of yeah. It, some, the, something that takes you out of it is the jokes. The sort of asides are just really not that funny. Well, I think sometimes he had some spare bits of stand-up, didn't he? It's uh, a scene yeah. like that. But in terms of comparing it to Don't Look Up, Don't Look Up has the meteor coming to Earth and everyone can... And, like, the sort of... What would you call it? Like, the liberal elite... No, the, the sort of capitalist elites deciding it's more valuable for it to hit the planet. And in this one, you've got a secret cabal of capitalist shits trying to speed up the death of the planet so that they can share the resources among themselves. So both both 
There's Entirely some, plausible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 What well, did you have any comments on all of that? Is it brought back memories? Uh, yeah. God, I, I really haven't read it. Have you finished it now? Okay. Well, I've read the end. Right. Okay. <laughs> yeah, because I mean that kind of that was what made me think of it when I was um, watching Don't Look Up when yeah. they uh, when they agree to party like there's no tomorrow because yeah. there's nothing else they can do, yeah. um, and that did sort of remind me of um, Don't Look Up. Or so it was interesting. Yeah. Um, A hell of an parallel. exit. Is yeah. The last chapter. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then that's in the parallels. There's no redemption in either. Like yeah. there's no bit where anyone comes up with a solution that reverses the damage that humanity has done. It's just fatalistic. Yeah. So yeah, both uh, interesting and very much kind of of their time visions of how how the world might end and how satire might convey that. Um, and Stark comes from well, kind of comes from a moment where I think the conversation was more about CFCs and aerosols mm. than um, climate change. Yeah. So you just probably the concept of global warming would have just been but it's more like the greenhouse effect yeah, and so a lot on of greenhouse effects yeah and the aerosols thing is is very like it comes up all the time to the point and it's on the front cover of the book yeah but uh, it transpires that the doomsday group who, who worked for the secret cabal of absolute capitalist shits worked out that aerosols were damaging 15 years before everyone else and but rather than do anything to stop it they just encouraged people to use more aerosols whilst they still could yeah th- th- those kinds of contradictions it does say on the front of the book that it's a ground, it's the groundbreaking best-selling debut novel of Ben Elton, but I'm not I sure... I think it broke ground in that it broke the ground of him not having written his first novel right. yet, didn't it? I mean, I don't know if it was groundbreaking in any other way than a personal way. No. Do you think it breaks new ground? I was trying to think what on earth it could mean. Uh, it, the, the chapter structure is a bit strange. In mm. that rather than just having a chapter, the chapters are always broken up into about five sub-chapters that all have their own headings, many of which are embarrassingly weak jokes. And I suppose um, that that would be, you know, because it's from the modern times, that mm. would be a, an author playing around with convention and feeling that they can do different yeah. things with it, because whereas previous to that, authors and writers and poets tended to only ever go for pre-existing forms and adhere to them quite slavishly. Yeah, so if you think of an 18th century historical novelist like Lauren Stern, he was a real slave to form. Yeah, he's like, I've got the manual, (laughs) here is how you write a novel. Chapters should be between 10 and 15 pages long and that is what I shall do. And them's the rules. In a linear order. Yeah. And everything has to be explained. Yeah, and so we've come a long way from Lawrence Stern to Ben Elton, haven't we? (laughs) Oh, yeah. That's the march of progress. That was satire. That was satire. Yeah. yeah. So, um, do you, what do you think about? In conclusion, having talked about that for an hour, what do you think <laughs> about um, satirising the apocalypse? Is it a productive thing to do? Um. Well, the, hmm, define productive. I mean, you're not really. It's not going to stir up any activism, is it? And it, no. it's more sort of doom porn. Mm. Um, it's almost a kind of grim satisfaction in watching the worst play out. So, I mean, I think I think we can if we want to. Yeah, I'm not you surprised know. that satire is drawn to the apocalypse because there is. Yeah. I mean, I know this is something that our old friend of the podcast Andrew Doyle talks about is whether or not satire is optimistic or pessimistic. But there is. It's certainly part of the satirical pose that you're not going to make any difference. Yeah. And we, we've talked briefly before about satire and death, um, and I think which will which will bring us to our fine item. But yeah, this kind of uh, it's the ultimate pose, isn't it? Like we're all fucked. That's yeah. the that's the ultimate satirical thing, the ultimate irresolution, if you like. Like there's this is a forlorn hope, and I'm going to laugh into it. 
Yeah, I, absolutely. Mm. Um, there's something weirdly compelling about watching it and laughing at it yeah. in a dark way. But let's spend just a really quick couple of minutes talking about Netflix's Death to 2021, which I think is significantly more time than was spent on scripting, planning, or thinking about <laughs> the actual show itself. Yeah. Uh, what did you think about that? Spoiler, oh I thought God. it was proper shit. I thought it was awful. No, I, well, I think we've suggested earlier that people should be sometimes sceptical of reviewers. But I thought the reviews for this were bang on. Yeah. that it was absolutely dreadful. So, Death to Twenty Twenty One. Do you think we should give a little bit of context for what it is? Yeah, probably not then. much. Um, well, it's the sequel to Death to Twenty Twenty Twenty, really, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Um, so it's like a summary of shit that's happened this year. Pretty much on this occasion, exclusively in America. Twenty Twenty paid lip service to other places, but this was yeah. mostly America. It was wasn't mostly it? America. It was mostly actually um, the offices of Netflix. Just sort of things that have happened. Yeah. in America and then some sort of caricatures and parodies in between like some running characters who mm. were not particularly well observed or well conceived um, commenting on, on those things yeah. and it was be like well I think that that's good because I'm an idiot and because I'm an idiot I'm also an anti-vaxxer yeah. and then in June more people died like yeah. oh, it was a weird I mean thank goodness for Diane Morgan but She's been in better. She well, she did some passable stuff with some terrible material, yeah. didn't she? But I mean, there's a there's a generic problem with this, and I think we talked about it last year, which is it has to decide whether it's a sort of roundup of the year, in which case you don't need to invent in theory comedy characters to just say what's happened because there's bits where there's like a character a journalist who doesn't have any jokes but just like is in character saying what's happened. What's yeah, I mean, and the, the Lucy Liu character was yeah. just like. Well, that's I, that's fine, and but might, like, what? It might be more interesting if you had some characters who were real and some characters who were cartoon characters, and then you yeah, guess characters. which ones? Yeah. Um, so it's that, but or is it like a joke? Is it a comedy show, or is it a parody of such shows? Because it's like those kind of roundup shows. Because, but the vast majority of the show is a summary of events that have happened this yeah. year, with relatively little like glossing or commentary no. or satire, and. I mean, that's a thing that you can do. Yeah. But I just... Yeah. Are we being too harsh? Are we like the the first round of reviewers of Don't Look Up? I didn't think it was very yeah, good. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that annoyed me about it, because I just thought it was too nakedly transparent uh, in the, in terms of the ambitions of this show, which is a flagship Netflix show, is that out of the 12 months, at least four or five of the items were to do with Netflix things. Yeah. So, who remember, What do you remember most about January 2021? Oh, it's probably Obviously, Bridgerton. Yeah. Like, what do you remember most about March? Oh, Seaspiracy, the heart-wrenching yeah. documentary about the... I didn't even see that. I didn't know what no. that was. So, yeah, and it did. It was like Bridgerton, Seaspiracy, Squid, Squid Games. Games. There was another one later, wasn't there? Some other Netflix show. And it's uh, like possibly so people people thought that Bridgerton was remarkable. That's not satire. That's an advert. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, yeah, I thought it was I thought it was bad, and I think it's a shame. And this became a meme as well. People saying, "Well, people in real life saying to me when we got back, did you see Death of 2021?'" I'm so relieved that Charlie Brooke wasn't yeah. directly involved. Yeah. Well, as soon as you say it's shit, you have to be like, but I don't think it's really to do with Charlie Brooker anymore. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, although in happier Charlie Brooker news, have you heard that the Netflix have commissioned him to write Kunk on Earth, a six-part series? I have heard because you told me. Yeah, yeah. six-part documentary series presented by the satirical character Philomena Kunk. So well, let's hope that's better. Um, yeah. Was that? Um, it was on BBC originally, wasn't it? It was. Yeah. Yeah. It's a bit sad. 
the well maybe it should you know start getting bedded in seeing as yeah. uh, they're trying to destroy the BBC now I as hope well. that they don't do Death to 2022 because we yeah. have to watch it and talk about it again no should we just make a pact here and now if these things happen 2022 occurs without meteors comets or actual apocalypse we both survive all of 2022 there is a Netflix death of 2022 should we just promise that we're not going to talk about it and, yeah. or make anyone listen to it we're just like this is this is death to the death to franchise now yeah. we're laying it to rest yeah bereft of life yeah it don't rests in it. peace don't watch it yeah watch, no more watch, watch the other film yeah oh, read it. a book for goodness read sake a read, read a book Stark by Ben Elton yeah. or another book I don't yeah. mind. Yeah. No. Okay. So uh, read the book of Bridgerton. Don't good luck with that because yeah. it's not. It is based on something. Isn't it's it? based it's on books. Yeah. Based on a series ones. of books. No, they're not good. No. <laughs> no. So um, um, yeah, there we go. That's the end of talking about the apocalypse. Yeah, and the end of talking about satire, which we've been doing for quite a long time now, haven't we? On this episode, so we should probably start wrapping it up. We should. So thanks everyone for listening. What, yeah. Uh, thank you. What should people do if they were affected or impacted by this discussion of the end of the world? Um. Just, just deal with it yeah 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 and let us know if we've helped you to deal with it yeah by emailing us at satire no more at gmail.com yeah or drop or us a tweet could, drop us a drop us a tweet on twitter at satire no more that's the one i was going to say a different one then and um, uh, follow us on instagram follow us on instagram um at a safe distance at talk about, at, satire. At talk about satire yeah and um yeah take care stay away from meteors um stay away from death in 2021 and yep. um, sit up. <laughs> Shut up! <laughs> and eat my satire. Bye! Bye. It's one more for the bosses, and another for the masses. And if you think I should be in the dick, you can suck my press in the dick. And you do what I tell you. And you do what I tell you. Fuck you. I don't do what I tell you. Fuck you. I do whatever I want to. Fuck you. I don't do what I tell you. Fuck you. I don't do what I tell you. Fuck you. I don't do what I tell you. Fuck you. I do what I want to. 